0: It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. There's good birthday surprises, like when your friends throw you a party. And bad ones, like realising you're so old you can't blow out all your candles in one go. At PhoneWatch, we're celebrating 30 years of protecting Irish homes. And we've got a birthday surprise for you. For a very limited time, get a PhoneWatch alarm installed for only €30. Euro. Yes, just €30. Euro. Offer ends November 30th, so order right away at phonewatch.ie. Monitoring fees apply.
1: Welcome to uh, A Rugby Life, which is the spin-off series of the Blood and Mud podcast in which we have a chat with people with a story to tell from the game of rugby. Uh, I'm Lee Calvert and joining me tonight for this episode is Laura Jane Jones. Hi. Hello. Uh, A woman who's worked in rugby media for Cardiff Blues, World Rugby, Sky among others. Have I missed anybody? Probably a lot. We can talk about it as we're going through (laughs)
0: <laughs> and we'll yeah.
1: have a bit of a chat about that and all of that stuff and what all of that was like as we go through this tonight and or today, depends on when you're listening I suppose um, if you want to get in touch with the podcast we are on, at I am on, at Blood and Mud this is available exclusively to our Patreon subscribers and I'll talk to you all about that in a minute so where you can go and sign up and get this episode over the summer at patreon.com slash Um if you want to get in touch with me I've already told you but how do we get in touch with you? Laura Jane, if you need to.
2: Find me on Twitter, at MissLJJ, or Instagram, Laura Jane Jones. Um, and I guess all of the kind of um, other contact so info. They in can my...
1: search, can't they? They'll find it. Absolutely. You're fairly front and centre in the social media world, I think, aren't you?
2: Oh, it's something I've always been quite passionate about. So, yeah, I have uh, I think most people will either follow me or know who I am and specifically not follow me for that reason. So, <laughs> well,
1: We've all been there. <clears throat> exactly. Sorry, so, obviously, we're going to talk about your whole life in rugby and what that means and all that kind of stuff. But what have you been up to most recently then?
2: Well, I've just come off um, producing the Women's World Series, Sevens World Series, for the first time this season, which has been um, a bit different for me, actually. I, I obviously was at Sky previous to that um, for going on for eight years wow. and decided to uh, go out on my own last October, go freelance. Um, since then I've worked for um, the Welsh Rugby Union TV and I've worked for the World 7 Series producing the women's tour uh, around the world, Dubai, Sydney, Japan, Canada and most recently Paris. Um, and I've done some work for Channel 4 in recent weeks and uh, I was actually at the Exeter 7s last weekend for Sky. So yeah, it's busy, it's great fun. Uh, I'm very lucky to uh, be a part of this industry, cool. I think.
1: For so somebody like me, who doesn't who knows has heard the word producer five million times in numerous different ways, but I really don't know what a producer does. When you say you produce the World Seven series, what does what does that entail?
2: So my role as a producer on the World Seven series is um, kind of encompasses a lot of the non live stuff and yeah. highlights and the content that you watch on the World Rugby YouTube platform, which is obviously a very, very popular mm. uh, YouTube channel for rugby fans. So we generally get out there about four days before a tournament. And before that, I will have organized interview content with different teams. So we do um, pieces where we look at um, previous games and uh, players who are going to star in, in that weekend and stories that players have to tell and as a producer it's my job to find those stories work out how we're going to tell that story um be it the where how why um and and basically bring it to fruition so especially as a, a producer in, in an environment like this where you're kind of the main point of contact for broadcast um, mm. uh, it's it's your job to plan the interview plan your questions you, you, you act as everything in that environment I'm very lucky on the on the world seven series to have a great cameraman who um I get to leave a lot of the kind of creative stuff to in the way that we shoot stuff we've had some fun this season going to places like fire stations and stuff like that um but you kind of as a producer you're you are the buck stops with you is how I always kind of try to. Is it your job
1: to come up with the ideas for all these things? Or do you have like a oh, creative yeah. team? And
2: so, yeah, it's very much a case of um, searching out the stories, and and I've been very lucky during my um, TV career to have worked with some incredibly talented producers who've, you know, taught me so much about the way um, to find those stories and and what to look for. You know, there's lots of things that are very obvious on the surface. Um, but it's the things you drill down into that, that can sometimes be the more interesting things to talk about with people. And, and do you know what that's, yeah, you know, we've already talked about social media and that forming a, a big kind of part of. Of who I am and how people identify me in this industry but for me it's been a huge tool in in finding those stories you know certainly when I was at Sky and I worked on programs like rugby club or European weekends where we were turning out a feature per team at times mm. you were you were always looking for angles and things like Twitter and Instagram have given us that access to players that certainly was unheard of 10 years ago and it means that if you can go to a player and And suggest, oh, well, you know, I know that you've got a dog and and, you you love walking with a dog and all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, it it means that you've got a a point of kind of um, common ground, really. So I did a, a feature series at Sky called Coffee Club. And that was based around the idea that, you know, I could see from social media, and we all can, that the boys finish training and they go off to the nearest coffee shop to training. And they'll play credit card roulette or they'll have a certain brownie that they'll treat themselves to after... Fat tests have been done at the beginning of the season and and that idea was born out of that kind of um seeing how they're they're interacting and and you know trying to piggyback what they're doing anyway.
1: The um well, the, the offer you do drink a lot of coffee because it seems to me about fourteen thousand of them have started coffee businesses.
2: Yeah, do you know what? I think it's it's quite a natural thing for them because obviously professional rugby players nowadays they can't drink, you know, they, their skin folds are done on a frequent basis as we see them getting into each other on social media about. So actually, the only vice that many of them are able to have is caffeine and coffee. And that's why, you know, caffeine is something that's part of their nutritional, um, like, setup. You know, they're obviously chewing caffeine gum and stuff before games. So they drink a lot of coffee to get them through the days and get them through training. And it, to me, it's quite a natural progression for them to have, you know, found that as as businesses. For a lot of them,
1: so we'll come back and talk about some more about what's going on. To start with, but obviously, this is this is you know the clue is in the title of Rugby Live. So we're interested to know about you know how you got into rugby and stuff. So where did rugby start from you? You from start for you? You're from South Wales, right?
2: Right. Yeah, I'm from uh, I'm from Cowbridge. It's in the Vale of Morgan. It's a pretty well known town. Most yeah. people from, from Wales would hear that and go, "Oh, posh." Then um, <laughs> is that yeah. right?
1: Were you posh then? Uh,
2: I don't think I am. It's a very, it's a normal town. It's just people's view of it. My mum and dad aren't from Cowbridge. My dad's from Philly. Uh, My mum is, is a, a Cockney and they met in the Air Force. So my dad played rugby for the Air Force, for RAF Germany, combined services and, and is very involved in the game to this day. And I think the thing for me and, and where I've been very lucky is that there was never a kind of, she's a girl. So I won't pass this interest on to her. In fact, it was something where he was keen to nurture it even more. Um, so, dad- so do, you credit, do you credit your dad with it then, basically? With- yeah, absolutely. He was taking me to watch Cardiff RFC um, from a very young age. And then regionalization probably happened at a pretty good time for me. I was about 12 when regionalization right. came in. And as much as people talk about attachment to brands, branding, Is very strong in teenagers, and Cardiff Blues was a kind of easy brand to get behind as a preteen. So I was you know mad into the blues i had a picture of reese williams on my student planner which is massively embarrassing because he is a family friend and has Did he have no the
1: tape way. round his head or was it with or was it with or without tape
2: it, without the tape it was he was, he was probably about 19 in, in the picture that was on my student planner um and i was really lucky because dad would take me to games and you know, i'd get to meet players and it and I just really, I think probably a big part of that initially was just spending time with dad. So, Mm. you know, that's what kind of encouraged it. And then as I got older, I think I realized actually, no, I'm really into this. Um, and probably when I was about 15, maybe a little bit, yeah, about 15, I, I got a season ticket. He bought me a season ticket. And from then on, that was our thing. Um, so so, still a when, Cardiff
1: Blues fan through and through. Now, then, even though obviously you have to cover a lot of sports and sorry, sports yeah, teams and everything.
2: You can always try and be neutral. You can always claim to be neutral, but I think if you've had an attachment to a team, you will always have that attachment. Don't get me wrong. This season just gone, I was I massively enjoyed watching the Scarlets run and was lucky enough to get down to a few of those European games. I was at the uh, quarter final against La Rochelle my um, my best friend's husband's actually a, a big scarlets fan which means that my godson is which breaks my heart <laughs> it's, you know again it's that thing of rugby forms the center of a lot of family life in Wales I think um you know now if I'm not working and the blues are playing on a Saturday I will go and watch the blues with my dad and my uncle and you know it's it's a big part of, of who we are as a family it's it's something that you know we, we my, I lost my grandfather, last month and we at his funeral you know he'd had a a great life and and raised many big rugby fans but (laughs) um, you know it's something that gets mentioned in eulogies at funerals and stuff in wales it's something that forms a big part of our national identity and culture and um you know i'm very lucky that that's something that was very nurtured in me so i left school and didn't really know what i wanted to do um and got some work experience at the blues for a week and then
1: what was that doing
2: uh so i went for a week to work with gwydion Griffiths, who was the press officer at the time mm. um and it was a kind of poor gwids it was a week that sealed the deal of history there that they just couldn't get rid of me so i stayed for 3 years slightly beyond my welcome perhaps of of an initial week but whilst i was there i learned so much about the way that a rugby club operated and i made lots of contacts and you know i Let's, I'm not going to pretend that I was doing anything particularly uh, exciting or to write home about. I was very lucky that I'd write match reports that would go in the programs on the website and I would I had my own little junior club section of the program and, you know, I'd occasionally get to go and interview die for the um, DOR notes and stuff like that. But it gave me a huge um, kind of opportunity to see how rugby worked at the highest level and, and from there... I guess I got my, my links to Sky. Um, I went to Swansea Uni, I worked at the Blues whilst I was in uni and then graduated and, and was at Sky two weeks after I graduated. When did you decide
1: that, Well, I suppose what came first? Was it wanting to work in, when you realised you were in it, wanting to work in rugby or wanting to work in television or is it hard to separate the two?
2: I am very much or I was very much one of those kids where I'd come home from school one week and I'd be like I know what I want to be I want to be a doctor and then I'd come home <laughs> and be like I know what I want to be I want to be a stand-up comedian and then I'd come home the next week and I'd want to be a lion tamer and I think I was always going to do something that was a bit kind of left field I was never going to be an accountant or a lawyer or something like that partly because I'm thick and crap at me. but I um, I went to work for the Blues and then I think Whilst I was there, I thought, okay, what can I do? Like, what job can this be that I just watch rugby all the time? It's not really, like, a proper job. I won't have to wear, like, office clothes. Um, how, and old I, did,
1: how old were you then, sorry, just to so I can clarify?
2: Went to the Blues at 18, um, and then wow. after you graduated and went to Sky straight away I'm graduating.
1: interested because it seems that at 18 or 19, and I don't know, and I could be getting this wrong because so I'm asking a question, really. I don't know many 18 or 19, you know, that have gone... How could I create a job here that I that, that will work for me? Was that a confidence thing? You just thought, oh, I can work. You know,
2: well, a lot you know, of people go,
1: you know, I'll just oh shit, I'll just give them whatever, I'll just whatever they give me, I'll have, and I don't really know what to do. You know, but it seems that from the way you explain it, you kind of went right. I'm going to create myself an opportunity here, and at that age, that's quite. It strikes me as quite unique.
2: From the outside, it probably looks like bold confidence, but I right. think the reality is, I'm a massive dreamer. So to me, <laughs> it was like, all right, well. I'll strive to be Gabby Logan and like however many rungs further down the ladder I reach doing that or what, you know, I'll throw something and see what sticks. And I was like, okay, I want to be a Sky Sports presenter. So I was working at the Blues in uni, I studied PR at uni and I was like, okay, I want to be a Sky Sports reporter or a Sky Sports presenter or something. So whilst I was in my last year, I sent off my CV and stuff to Sky and then got phone call out of the blue very suddenly um, in that summer after I finished uni when I was at this kind of point where I would graduated and had worked for the Blues throughout my degree but then all of a sudden it was like well hang on like this isn't you don't have a career here at the Blues you help you know you help in the marketing department you're doing a bit of everything but you need to grow up a bit and find a proper job and I literally was sat at my desk at the Blues, probably coming under a lot of pressure from my parents, mm. and had a phone call from Sky Sports. Do you want to come in for an interview for an office junior job? Oh, happy days, yeah, fine. So that fell in my lap.
1: Is that how it always works? That in media? Because I don't know. Do people always start off as junior stroke runners, stroke whatever, yeah, and then work their way up to presenting?
2: Absolutely. I think in the in the most part, that's how it works. I think some people's journey will be longer than others. You know, you're always going to have characters like Alex Payne who from day one was talent spotted as being exceptional Mm. Um, and his journey was a lot shorter than most people's. Um, But it is because he is an exceptional presenter. Um, But most people, yeah, will go in because the big thing is that that person who's standing up on your screen talking, they are the public face of, of everything that's going on behind the camera, everything that's going on in that outside broadcast truck and there there are a huge amount of moving parts to make all of that happen and that person needs to understand what everyone's doing to some extent now that won't be permeating their consciousness when they're talking to a player in studio about the game upcoming but when the shit hits the fan they need to have a bit of a get out of jail free card where they know okay the director comes through in their ear and says we haven't got that VT, it's not there. So they need to know what that means and they need to be able to fill.
1: There was a brilliant moment, was it last year, the year before, when did they lose the feed or something happened and Alex Payne had to fill about 45 minutes with Will Greenwood.
2: It was James Gemmill and Will Greenwood, James yeah. Gemmill and
1: Will Greenwood, that was it. Will Greenwood. I remember Will Greenwood had a shell suit top and a dicky bow. I
2: yeah. remember
1: that. It's... And actually I kind of thought, it was, it, was, it was kind of great and excruciating all at the same time in many ways, but it was a... But yeah, that point about shit hitting the fan made me think of that.
2: It is, and it's one of those things where, you know, shit hitting the fan doesn't always mean things. In that um, event, I believe that it was a delayed kickoff due to snow at Treviso.
1: Oh, yes, yeah.
2: I'm such an anorak, aren't I? <laughs> and those kind of things. From James's perspective, in that environment, it was a case of, all right, we're just going to chat. I've got someone here who... Is, you know, famously been on a couple of Lions tours, nearly died on one of them, has won a World Cup. There's going to be loads to talk about. But you've also got to remember that earlier that season, James had probably had the most difficult shift of his life when they're on air and they're in the middle of a game and they're getting texts through to say, Anthony Foley's died in Paris.
1: Yeah, right.
2: the, that's the make of a great presenter, that they can deal with those situations and, and they know what's going on in that gallery. So, you know, James Gemmel was incredible that day and and so sympathetically dealt with it with you know people in that studio who knew him very very well but you've got to remember in his ear he would have had a director saying james we're getting an obit picture to go in the screen behind you or uh james we've got some some pictures to float in of him lifting the trophy with munster or you've got a producer saying to him uh james um you know, giving him dates that Foley first won a cap and, um, you know, his, his um, previous honours with clubs and, and province, which, because you don't know that's going to happen in the show, James wouldn't have prepped any of that, but he seamlessly is delivering that. Like, he knew that off the top of his head, and that's the, the beauty of these people who, you know, and it's yes. the same for Craig Doyle at, at BT and across the board in, in, you know, the industry. These people are...
1: I went to, one of my friends was in the, this doesn't seem related, but I think it is, well, we'll find out now. One of my friends was, uh, he, he was in the Army Air Corps and he wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And he did everything very well until he had to get to the final test, which is flying on instruments. So you can't see anything, you're flying on instruments, obviously. And it's not just the fact, you could, so you basically got to pick your whole position and your speed just from looking at the instruments. And the whole time that you're doing that, obviously, they, they throw all these human factors at you and sort of say, the guy next to you goes, what time is it? What day is it? What's your altitude? You know, there's all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And when you hear stuff like that, it always makes you think, Like, I mean, obviously, you're not going to drop out of the air and crash, are you? But, you know, it's it makes me think, and he actually failed and didn't become a helicopter pilot because he couldn't do the flying on instruments. And I don't, I'm not asking to name any names or anything, but there are there other, other people who who, who who literally can't do it, can't process and, all that information?
2: Certainly, and to be honest, it's not it's not presenters because to have got to that point, you'll have had a number of, of dummy flights to relate it to, right, to okay. that. But certainly, you get guests who come into the studio, and you'll say to them as a producer, "Do you want an earpiece? Do you want do you want ears?" Uh, do you want talk back and you'll get people who've done a lot of TV and say yes but then you can see them kind of glazing as they're listening or um, you know kind of being told off for things I think it was quite interesting during um, ITV's World Cup coverage Patrice Evra had an earpiece in and there was one studio where you could quite clearly tell he'd been told off for doing something and and it's it's those kind of things where you can see people reacting to it must It must
1: be the, great watching sports coverage with you you just well, sit there going, "Oh look, look at his face. He looks like he's, I don't know, got the wrong earpiece in or something."
2: And, and also, we have to remind ourselves, I think, as people who work in TV, that when we're making a program, the things that we notice and eat us up, no one at home does.
1: No, indeed. Even yeah, I can imagine.
2: The producer at Sky, who's a good mate of mine, Tom Edwards, who would get on to all of us when we were assistant producers about film effect, which is basically an effect that you put on um, VTs and the montages that you watch. And it was his massive bugbear. And he would, we'd have emails on a weekly basis, um, please remember, make sure there's film effect throughout your VT. i I'd seeing increasing numbers where only half the shots have got it. Nobody at home knows what that is. Nobody at home is noticing that. Nobody, not one single person is watching that go in only half of that VT's been defielded because no one knows what that is. But when you're in that position, when we're there, to us, it's the biggest thing. And I think that's what, I think we're very lucky as, as rugby viewers in the UK and Ireland that the people who work behind the scenes on this across the broadcasters, not just at Sky, at BT, at BBC, there are people who are so experienced and so at the top of their game with it that the product that we get, we are so lucky because... It's people are making product for other people who know what they're watching for, not just the general public, if you get what I mean. So,
1: yeah, yeah I, I, um, I have a very small experience of it because I, I went on BT Sport Rugby Tonight about 18, about a year and a half ago, can't remember. Mm-hmm. Christmas episode, I think, not last year, year before. And they had me on to talk about, and I was one of the people who talked about the uh, Challenge Cup that weekend. Yeah. Because obviously they gave all the big games to Hugo and all that. Long. But um, <laughs> but um, I did see a little window into what it's like because before in the green room, before they came into me and they said, look, here's a running list. We're going to ask you about this and this and this. And I said, well, how long have we got to talk about it? They said, well, the whole section will be about three minutes. And I was like, three minutes? i know we talk for about an hour and a half on a podcast. That's if, you know, I'm, I'm t- timing it in. And then and you see how meticulously planned it all is. And literally the way people move, and it's, it's quite a a dynamic type of show is it will be tonight so the cameras are sweeping around all the time and i had to talk about a try it was a gareth patty try for um for bath and he and the, the wheel this big telly in front of you while you're talking and it is yeah it is it is it's amazing and it goes well by like that
2: but also what you've got to remember is they that running order will have been set in stone probably for 24 hours up to that point and you could be in a situation where you think, "All right, we've got three minutes to talk about Challenge Cup." You nail that, and you've got a PA or a DA counting in your ear to the VT, and then all of a sudden, "Oh no, there's no VT." So you've exhausted what you were going to talk about, but then you can be told, "Yeah, Phil, three minutes to fill here." So it's being <laughs> that adaptable, and that's where the talent lies, I think, in it.
1: Yeah, and I went into the gallery for one one before. I, I went another time as well. And there was one lady who was in the gallery who just had a lot of stopwatches.
2: That's the it PS. Was... That's a, a production assistant or a right. director
1: assistant. Yeah, all she was doing was just, like you said, counting down all the time.
2: But not just counting down, those people are counting in time code. So that's something, <laughs> I, as, as an assistant. Like the matrix. It is the hardest thing in the world. So you are taught to count as one of the first things you do in school, in life, and you count in hundreds. We count in hundreds. Money is in hundreds. Most things are in hundreds, apart I from yeah. sixties. And as an AP at Sky, so when we used to do rugby club, if something went wrong, you had to fix the sh- show. So say we were pre-recording it to go out at, say, so we were pre-recording it at 4pm and it was going out at 8pm, you'd have to fix something if it went wrong. So you'd pick up where the problem had occurred and there'd be a join point. But then the show had to still equal the duration that was planned for the slot, and I would be in tears. If it was Thursday, I would be crying my eyes out trying to work out how this fix would work because I'm terrible at maths and it's completely counterintuitive to count in 60s. So every Thursday, without fail, I'd throw a wobbly in the gallery. We'd be ejecting tapes, working out if it hit the tapeless system, working out how it's going to be delivered to TX. And, you know you do have problems you know an unnamed colleague managed to edit a black hole into a rugby club or you know there's been occasions where the wrong tape has been delivered and and things have, have gone out that shouldn't have done and stuff like that and it's that's where it's high stakes and it's one of those things where it's a massively fun industry and job and everything like that but the stakes are high i, I did um i was in the truck for the calcutta cup for bbc earlier this season and the director said as we go went on air good luck everyone don't mess up because there's 10 million people watching <laughs> and that's what you've got to remember if you make a mistake at work and you work in an office yes your boss might know a yeah. couple of colleagues but a huge portion of the uk tv viewing audience could could see you make a mistake so you know it's it's high stakes it's high risk what? but it's quite a high reward because it's so.
1: yeah what well, i was gonna say what kind of well, it seems like a daft question. Is it a very stressful job? Do people last long in it?
2: Um, I think it is massively stressful. There's no getting around that. It's um you can it's it's stressful in a in a difficult way to explain, I think, in that workloads can be very high, um, but not consistently. So when I was at Sky during the Six Nations, we'd, you know, not not exactly be like sitting around but you'd have a lot less on because
1: Mm.
2: you know league fixtures would stop for weekends and you might have anglo-welsh that wouldn't have as much production around it but then back in the day when sky showed the entirety of the heineken cup you'd have a weekend where every game was on sky and over the course of that weekend you'd be doing outside broadcasts in possibly three different countries you could be going belfast on a friday night to leicester on saturday up to glasgow on sunday off the back of spending your week visiting various clubs around the country editing the content from that and doing a magazine show on the thursday night so there's a lot of work and there's a lot to juggle in your head and you it's also a job where you're having to retain vast amounts of information in two kind of perspectives for on the one perspective it's the rugby you need to know what's going on in rugby Across the leagues, across the competitions, players, um, stakeholders—all this kind of stuff—you have to know all of that so that you're doing your job well enough. And on the other hand, it's the technical side of it because it is a very skilled Hmm. role, Um, and that's everybody who works on TV, from the runner to the presenter. So,
1: um, obviously, the outside view of media as well is that it's full of shit houses, ways to throw you under the bus to get, you know, to become the presenter.
2: It of course it is, though. But, like, I think, you know, it's. it's I was a, going to say,
1: is that true? But you've already answered it. Yeah, so go on.
2: You know, any job where lots of people want to do it, it's going to be like that. You know, you don't get in there and it's like, oh, well done. You're the one who made it. Uh, good luck as you climb the ladder of success. it's
1: Well, I'm still you, making tea. Yeah. Yeah,
2: but, you know, you get in and there's other people who want your job or people who think it's unfair that you're doing something or you know even within teams you might be competing for spots on international tours or you know roles on outside broadcasts because on an outside broadcast you might have five assistant producers in one of the broadcast teams at one of the broadcasters but they are all doing different jobs on the outside broadcast and you know one person might want to do something that someone else is doing so it's, you know, of course, it's, it's um, very competitive, but then it's an industry based around professional sport, which is competitive, and that's what brings out the best in people.
0: There's good birthday surprises, like when your friends throw you a party. And bad ones, like realising you're so old you can't blow out all your candles in one go. At PhoneWatch, we're celebrating 30 years of protecting Irish homes. And we've got a birthday surprise for you. For a very limited time, get a phone watch alarm installed for only 30 euro. Yes, just 30 euro. Offer ends November 30th, so order right away at PhoneWatch.ie. Monitoring fees apply. Pick up your phone while driving, and you might need to be picked up from work. Break the speed limit, and you could be breaking plans with your mates. Leave L or N plates off your car and you could be left getting taxis for the next six months. So ask yourself, is it really worth it? Seven penalty points over three years will disqualify learner and novice drivers for six months. Steer clear of points and stay on the road. A message from the Road Safety Authority.
1: You mentioned there about the, you know, people making the points about it not being deserved and stuff like that. So I suppose I've got to start asking the questions about. Obviously, the listeners will notice that you are a woman and um, still in the minority in that kind of working sport. Is that that a fair point?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So did you have
1: to deal with the, you're only here because of your chromosome as opposed to your talent?
2: I don't think I ever it's a difficult one I think as a woman you're always gonna you know, I'm, I'm a pretty um forthright feminist as a woman you're always gonna deal with it's always gonna be a struggle in a male environment I never felt that I had um issues because of um you've got this job because you're a girl right but you certainly have things that um you know you, you you're gonna have a different bond with players and press officers and coaches and stuff like that and I think you know as a woman you do fall back on your womanly charms at times and that can cause resentment the other thing as well is it's where you fit in a team because I won't name the 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 person but someone of very high standing in the game was a studio guest at Sky once and I'd been doing all the analysis on the show and I went into the studio floor afterwards to go and see the guests because one of the others was a, a, a pal and the person in question asked me for a makeup wipe because he assumed I was the makeup girl. <laughs> I couldn't have been the person in the gallery. And I think, you know, I, I always... What can go, you
1: say in that situation? I mean, can you say, no, excuse me, pal, I'm not the fucking makeup girl? Because, do you have to be because...
2: No, I I was like, I'm not the makeup girl, mate. I've, I've been the one cutting analysis in the gallery. And because the other guests there were people I knew and the presenter and stuff, they were like, oh... Right, you, okay, yeah. Um, And it kind of, you know, it's dissipated quite quickly. And and that, you know, the the person in question is embarrassed then that they've made that assumption. Hmm. But then equally, I think I. It's insidious
1: though,
2: isn't it? Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I've always gone by LJ, and it's gender neutral. It's androgynous. You know, if I'm signing off emails, certainly in the early days, as as LJ, people don't know. You know, I think a lot of people's assumption is that that's a a Lee Jones, not a Laura Hmm. Jane Jones. So it's certainly. I played on that. But then equally, you you do play on being a, a, a woman. I don't like saying a woman because it makes me feel very old. But being <laughs> a girl and, you know, I've, I've certainly got lots of friends in the game. And, you know, a, a lot of that often is to do with being a girl from the point of view that, especially with social media, you know, you you get a bit more traction when you're a girl because people follow you. You know, you, you put your best selfie as your profile picture, and people follow you. And and in reality, if, if I've been maybe a little bit cynical in doing that, it certainly worked because it then means when you want to get interviews across the line and features and stuff, if players are already following you, you can send them a little DM and and you know.
1: Yeah, no, I don't, well, I think everybody does that, don't they? I think Simon Thomas has been very clear in saying that Twitter's been a revelation to him as a journalist because it's, it's, it's basically your contact book now, you know.
2: but Simon's perspective, like he's come into it as a known journalist. Yeah, at, true. At Western Mail, whereas for me, starting out, it was Sky Sports Rugby Girl in my bio and a you know blonde, curly-haired, heavily filtered profile picture. Certainly, did me no harm, and you know it's not something that I think I'm necessary. It's not something I'm proud of. But it's certainly something that's been necessary, and you know you're dealing with with young boys. At the end of the day, you know these are young men who, if that's how I formed a bond with a lot of people in the first instance, then it certainly helped me.
1: Was it? I mean, all all of that stuff that you've just said, um, did that make it difficult at times? Did you find yourself in situations that you didn't really want to deal with?
2: you know you're, you're always going to have the odd person like slide into your dms but generally speaking it's weirdo fans like rugby fans doing yes. it you know it's obviously last season the belfast rape case hit the headlines yeah. and there's a lot of women who were very um vocal about their opinions of rugby players and the pool um which is a kind of feminist news site did a, a big piece about it and I kind of felt a little bit like, well, actually, I'm probably one of the... There's not a huge amount of people in my position who've got a a genuine right to reply here when it comes to men in this industry because there aren't that many women and there aren't that many women who have been here for as long as I have dealing with young men as a young woman. And I have never been put in a position ever in my 12 years of working in rugby union, professional rugby union, where a player has made me feel uncomfortable. Never. And that's something that I don't think gets said enough. You know, there was a lot of this kind of, well, rugby boys and and all this kind of thing. Boys will be boys is a horrible term, but it exists in professional rugby boys, boys who play rugby on a Saturday for South East Wales League Six. It is not something that I think is, you know, kind of consigned just to this professional
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was... Because... I, I was wondering how to respond to the whole Belfast thing as somebody who has a weekly platform. I mean, we're not anything like as big as a lot of people out there, but we have got a platform of people who listen, and I wasn't really sure what to do. I didn't want to comment while it was going on, actually, because I didn't want to compromise anything. When it came out, I ended up just doing a bit of a thread on Twitter. My point was, I think, similar to what you're saying, I've never really dealt with professional rugby. I don't know anything about it. What I do, I did play rugby for a very long time in South Wales, actually. I lived there for a while, and in numerous other places and I did say look we have to be honest about what kind of behaviors are rewarded at clubs and i don't even mean i don't mean something as minging as what happened in, in the belfast case whether it was illegal or not it was minging yeah. um it's more about what is what kind of if you're on tour what kind of behavior gets rewarded by senior people in clubs and that's where i think we might have a problem that we need to work on
2: things i think and i think actually if we're going to start addressing problems like that in clubs especially at a lower level yeah
1: indeed yeah
2: things like players checking in car keys when they get to the club on a saturday because if you are at home and you win the chairman gives you a slab of beers or something you know Mm. very few people that that you know especially you know what it's like in, in south wales that you know this five and drive attitude that that permeates rugby and i think they're the kind of things that we do need to address and actually um you know, this is this is a bigger thing than rugby and it's not something I attribute to rugby and I think that's where my issue was last year. Like, I am, as a feminist, as um, a kind of active member of, of feminist um, ideology in the UK, there are lots of things that I have an issue with that that have nothing to do with rugby union. That's why it upset me last year because there were a lot of women who were making very bold, far-reaching statements about rugby players when I think, hang on a minute, I've got friends who are married to pro rugby players. I'm friends with pro rugby players who have got, you know, two, three kids at home, are doting fathers. And it just stank it bit that this all got...
1: It's a wider problem than rugby, I think. But what I was trying to say was, what we can do is play our part in our sport about how we want to deal with this. And, and, that, and that's where I think that rugby was a little weak, and continues to be a little bit weak on but, that.
2: But it's, it's interesting that you say that because I certainly know from the inside that there are clubs that have had people in to talk to players about consent. And this is something that, from the outside looking in, is like, wow, you know, these boys have been accused of this, but this is not the first time things like this have happened. Oh, you know, no, so, indeed, yeah.
1: Well, I think, it, well, you know, that's the my problem is When you look at the kind of stories that people tell, in rugby and you do think they're not the ones they're not the stories we should be telling
2: no absolutely and you know there are certain and isn't things- that
1: great no it's not great we shouldn't be telling those stories Find find another narrative yeah
2: but you know hashtag what goes on tour isn't it that's
1: the <laughs> yeah yeah sorry, we went a bit went down a bit of a rabbit hole there i do apologize but uh, yeah it was um, yeah so this point so you're working away you said well that then that, it's great that your experience was you've never been put in that situation and, and i think it is as you said it's very good that you go out there and say that because you've been in it for so long. Um, you worked at Sky for eight years. Yeah. I do a podcast, right? And I've always been, people always say, to you, wouldn't it wouldn't be great if you could do that full time. And I go, well, yeah, but I'm not really sure either because I might start not liking it then. Did you find yourself in a situation where you were enjoying the job less because of the, like you've said, the stress and and just being around it so much?
2: it's a weird one you can moan about work and have a weekend off and I'd still go and watch some form of rugby with dad whether that would be Cowboys RFC or the Blues or the Rags whatever I'd still go and watch rugby and I think the thing for me as somebody who works as a woman who works in rugby the issue that I have isn't stakeholders in the game isn't players it's it's fans and it's and it's men in general and and something I've always found very difficult is the Six Nations is a time for when we were at Sky, a time for us to enjoy because we'd often have weekends off during that period yeah. and we'd have to go to games. And I'd be in the pub on a Friday night before a game and you'd be having a debate with somebody or having a conversation and I'd get shouted down by people. And I think I do this every fucking <laughs> day, mate. Like this is literally what I get paid to do. And that's when you start to kind of bear the things that I'd like not enjoy about the job that you know everyone's a rugby fan everyone's got a right to be a fan everyone's got a right to say things but people would tell me stuff and I'd be like that isn't right like that's just not right. <laughs> and you know it's things like that and you know what it's it's it stems from things like people asking you about players the one that always gets me is people go well, so in Farrell like little twat isn't it and I'm like he is the most polite young man in rugby and it's you know it's something where I've I've probably started interviewing Owen when he was, you know, early twenties. And he's always been this lovely, lovely boy off the pitch, and people have a certain view of him, you know, on the pitch. And the amount of times I've got in arguments in the pub about stuff like that, and you just think, what is this? Like this is so annoying. And that's where you become a bit too involved in the sport. And I think as much as you love it and you love being in it, there are things that you stop kind of deriving pleasure from because you're a bit too involved, if that makes sense.
1: How difficult is it to keep your mouth shut sometimes when you're thinking, Well, I know something that could completely refute what this person's saying, but I know I can't say it. You ever find yourself in situations like that because it's privileged information or stuff that's gone on behind the scenes and stuff like that?
2: Me, you know, I'm I'm human and I'm Welsh. So when I'm so like obviously I can't comment and then I might have had a few drinks and bean girls on Mill Lane. I'm like, Right, you didn't hear this from me but you know, but
1: Owen Farrell is not a twat.
2: The other thing as well is that as rugby fans, and it's something that's quite difficult to explain and a lot of people don't like it, but rugby is a niche sport. At Mm. the end of the day, it is not... You know, when you look at the viewing figures for rugby on a weekly basis, they're tiny. When you think about how many people are watching Premier League or golf, even, cricket. So it's a niche sport. And because of that, it's a small community. So gossip travels fast you know I've had times where I've been in the pub and someone's told me something and I'm like that ain't true and then I'll be at a game the next day and someone will go fucking hell you won't believe this and I'm like, top of my so you know and, and little things like um this summer there's been a player who's had a high profile move from one country to another and I'd had someone say to me oh um that their house is going back up for rent, and I was like, "Nah, nah, yeah, yeah." yeah. Their, their house is going back up for rent. I was like, "Bloody hell, he must be moving back to England then." And you don't think anything of it, and then it gets announced, and you think, "Shut!" Like, I had, a, you know, exclusive kind of car there, but you've got to be very careful as well because because it is such a small industry, you might hear something, and like I've certainly had my fingers burnt in the past when I was younger doing things like this. But you hear something and. You're the first person to that piece of information, but if you ta- if you publicly announce that, what impact is that going to have on other stuff? There's a reason things don't necessarily hit the public domain straight away, because you you know if it, it might be to do with player injuries, you might know that straight away because you've seen that player on crutches the next morning up at Spire whilst you're having your toe x ray because yeah. you know banged it on the night out or something. But if you release that information before it's been officially released you stand to ruin a relationship with that club with that union so as much as that probably disappoints fans that you know it is the case because it's a small working industry and a small community and you can't afford to be unwelcomed at press conferences or by press officers so there's a kind of there's a bit of give and take with things like that
1: yeah and that's one of the reasons why i like doing what we do in that because i'm not I'm not in, I do a thing every week, but I'm not really into the kind of rugby thing like that. I'm not trying to maintain relationships and stuff. So I don't really have to make, if I want to say, I think he's a dick, yeah. I can, because I'm not really trying to get an interview with him. Or it's, it's one of the benefits of being the way I am, but it's also why you don't get very big. I'm niche within the niche, to use your niche point. Yeah. Um, so you worked at Sky for ages. You've now got your own Blonde Ambition Media, that's right. Yeah, your own production company. Yeah. When did you decide, well, well, no, actually not when, why Why did you decide to, you know, I don't want to work for a company anymore and I want to work for myself?
0: I
2: think uh, last summer during the Lions, it, I wasn't really well, I had um, glandular fever and it kind of made me realise how much I was working and the hours and how much of my life I was giving to, to Sky Sports and, you know, where how was I going to progress there and if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to progress to a certain point, you know, as a producer, as a reporter, whatever, did I need to leave to do that? And unfortunately, you know, I left with a very heavy heart because some of my best friends in the world are my former Sky colleagues and, you know, I speak to them on a daily basis, Josh Turner. Um, (laughs) It's, for me, the only way I was going to take any kind of steps forward or upwards I had to leave so it wasn't an easy decision to make but it certainly was the right decision at the right time and I think I'd kind of it was a bit of a 7 year itch thing for me as well in that my dad's a salesman so I've grown up him working for lots of different companies and moving companies frequently and never worked you know he didn't work for the same company my whole life or anything so I think I kind of followed his lead with that a little bit and realized that if I stay here much longer, I'll never leave. Mm. So I kind of, it wasn't an easy decision, but it was something that felt very kind of vindicated straight away that it was the right thing to have done. And, you know, it's one of those things where I've left Sky and I'm so happy and I'm loving, loving life and loving working on lots of different products, you know, specifically the women's world series. But working at sky sports afforded me an education that i you know you you can't buy that learning how to make tv in an environment you know when i joined sky they were the sports broadcaster in the uk there wasn't anyone else in the market so i'd come after the ntl thing after satanta before bt and you know it it did mean that we you 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 have to learn how to do everything. And from that perspective, as hard as it is when you're an editorial assistant and a junior assistant producer, it also means that by the time you've been doing it for five, six, seven years, you've got this skill set that means that you can turn your hand to anything. And that's something that now means that, I can pick up lots of different work doing lots of different things in this industry and that's something that I enjoy like I like being able to do. When you say
1: lots of different ways is that, is that lots, of, lots of different sports or is that anything basically that you're doing now?
2: But any sport but any skill so basically it you know it, from producing to editing to um, EVS operating which is the way that replays are brought to your TV on an, an in an outside broadcast environment so you know, it means that you're you're learning loads of different skill sets, which are, you know, proper skill sets, not things that you can learn in a couple of weeks, not things that you can blag your way into, things that you, you have to have a very kind of specific knowledge of. And you know, you But you
1: don't want to do the counting thing, right?
2: Definitely not <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah,
1: you're accounting... you're a producer, right? Let me ask you an honest question and hopefully you can give me an honest answer. Okay. It might be a slightly loaded question. Okay. The interviews with coaches halfway through halves are fucking shit, aren't they?
2: Um, it's a difficult one because <laughs> there are some people who I think nail it and actually are quite good, but it it's it's dependent on what's going on in the game, it, and it's also dependent on who the club gives because in the so basically the clubs will enter into a contract with the broadcasters and the competition and the twenty and sixties as they're called. <laughs> are part of that contract so you have to do them you have to supply someone but one club might give an assistant coach or a head coach and another club might put up the team manager so you go down for the interview at scarlet's for instance and say they put mark taylor up he's like trying to fill out substitution cards whilst you're asking him a question that in reality he's not privy to because he's not a coach in that setup whereas back in the day with Connacht, Pat Lamb would do it. Pat Lamb would, you know, put his hand up. He wanted to do it and would be very forthright. I think Jerry Flannery is very good at Munster. I was when just about
1: did... to say, Flannery is probably the one I've seen. And I thought, you know what, you're actually okay at this. Everybody else I have funny. It doesn't matter who you get. It's just all the same bland crap, they say, really. But that's just me. Yeah,
2: it's a difficult one. And I know a lot of people are really anti the, the interviews when players come off for half-time. But I think the big thing for me, this season working in women's rugby, something that's really made me realise is that we made men's rugby quite clinical because the point that we're at now, we've got professionals who were born after rugby went professional, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I know you
1: mean,
2: They don't know anything but professional rugby and because of that, you've got boys who, from probably the age of 14, have thought, I'm going to be a pro rugby player. Not like, I want to be, like, this is very much something I'm on course for and the drop-off rates for that are huge but it does mean that lots of boys think that and will achieve that and for that reason they are being coached in things like answering questions and speaking to the media Mm, and you know it means that they're not having honesty coached out of them but and I actually don't think that it's something that press officers per se are responsible for I think players are very wary of what they say in the men's game because that from such a young age they think they're going to be a pro rugby player they don't want to get in trouble for saying something so they don't say anything whereas in the women's game all of these girls turn up for competition on a weekend they might have been doing their proper job the week previous to that then they have flown to the other side of the world to represent their country on the world series and all of them treat it like they are the luckiest women in the world they all have a massive sense of responsibility as flag bearers for women's sport globally. They know that they are role models. They are the first generation of women's elite rugby players. And for that reason, you know, certain girls like on our series, it's not a case of trying to eke an answer out of them. It's trying to get them to shut up. I'm not in a bad way. Like, I, you know, I could talk to them all day. But And this is the problem that I've always had with players, and I've, I've said it to, to players... A hundred times at the beginning of interviews, I will ask you less questions if you answer them properly. If you say six words, if you give me two sentences, I'm gonna to have to ask you another five questions because I need sound bites. I need you to say something. And the amount of times that you will go and do an interview and walk away and think, Yeah, that was alright, and watch the rushes back and think they haven't said anything. <laughs> They've rephrased the same sentence eight ways. And there are certain coaches where it doesn't matter what you ask them; they know what their answer is, so they will listen to the question and work out how they can make reword that into the answer that they wanted to give.
1: Yeah, and I think enough- this is the problem, isn't it? Because you've got to have the content, especially in you know in in you know I'm old enough to remember sport before satellite, when there wasn't enough time to have to fill all this stuff. Whereas then, when you have a satellite show, there is a lot of time. There's more time to fill. You need the content people expect that a little bit more people think, yeah, want more content but yet the result of that is you get more bland content arguably it's quite it's a strange
2: tension it, it's actually converse of that because as you know you could have a 2 hour slot for a match that's nothing you know you've got games that are running to almost that now hmm. so because of that you've got to think when's my opportunity i've got a 2 hour slot and i've got to get four ad breaks away in that 2 hours And those ad breaks are probably going to be three-minute ad breaks. So when can I do it? So, Yeah, I think I'll make
1: the mistake of thinking of the really big games as well, aren't I? But
2: but any game, you know, it's you think something like even massive games, you watch things like um, the BBC's World Cup coverage, and they've got no ad breaks, but they've got promos that they have to put in. So they could be having a great chat about the game that's just happened, but Lineker has got to now link to a four-minute VT about Wimbledon because, you know, it's prime time. And if we can push another product in that time, if we can push some adverts, so you've got to be very cute about where you get those interviews in. And I think that's what, you know, broadcasters are only ever trying to add value to what they're doing. So... You know, there's a bit of give and take. I think people will moan about certain things and then applaud other things. And what people have got to remember is that everything comes from being tried and tested. So, you know, there's, you know, things that RefCam, when that first came out, it was like, oh, God, this is horrendous. It makes me feel really sick. So now you don't see it as frequently. But then equally, it might be the decision maker in a TMO. So it's just about kind of the way that the sport the way that sports broadcasting develops these things will come and go you know we we will get to a point where players are mic'd up during a game but also hearing what's going on so they're being you know liking cricket
1: yeah cuz and and I watched the um, the Lions documentary this the latest one and all I could all I wanted was I wanted a 2 hour dvd of the of them being mic'd up in training yeah. But there was tiny bits of that. And I was like, this is amazing. But it was there was hardly any of it. So I do think, you know, um, well, you'll know much better than me, of course. But I could see why you might say that, I suppose. Because as a consumer, watching that stuff, I think, yeah, that's far more interesting than an interview or whatever.
2: But it's difficult as well. Because things like, you know, I was part of the player mic team at Sky. And I was quite heavily involved with how that worked and how that went on. And, you know, you, you do player mic. And you had CJ Stander on the player mic. And you, you, we could have we could have played out everything he said during that game. It was absolute gold. But then, equally, in the final in two thousand and when did Connacht win two thousand and fifteen? Yes. Um. 15, 16
1: Yeah.
2: So we had a Leinster player mic'd up and a Connacht player, and the Leinster player there was nothing that we could get out of that player mic for the game, but you've got to remember as well that you've got someone who's wearing a microphone and somebody listening to the whole game. That's all they're doing. That's their one job for the day is to listen to that and cut up a 30 second piece of VT for you to watch. So these things, as much as you know, people at home don't realize the work that goes into it as well. So that's why, you know, getting a a player interview as someone walks off the pitch or a coach's interview at 20 and 60, it's just adding a bit of depth to coverage. Yeah, you know, they're not always gonna be gold, but every now and again you are gonna get one that is amazing.
1: What would happen if you just stopped doing them, do you think? I'm not suggesting that's what you should, I'm just interested what your views are.
2: Do you know. think people would
1: go, why not interview? You know, I'm, I'm terribly upset you're not interviewing people anymore.
2: I think what's quite interesting is people will say you've only got to go on Twitter to see how much people hate them. But what you've also got to remember is the people who hate them are gonna be the only people who moan about who who talk about it. You know, you can't use... Yeah, you're basically
1: talking about me. Yeah, go on. <laughs> but,
2: but, you know, the big thing that I have found in the past years, and it's something that I actually took quite a long time to learn as well as somebody who, who loves social media, is that people moan about things on, on Twitter all the time, but it's an echo chamber. So you might think nobody likes this because everyone's complaining about it, but hmm. in reality, the only people who take to social media to talk about it are the people who are going to moan. You know, it's like people who go on TripAdvisor. They, they only go on there to complain and give it one star and say it was shit, you have to trawl to find the good reviews because if you if something's good, you don't comment on it. Whereas, you know, the only time you get any traction of positivity is when, you know, you have a CJ Standard player mic where he's congratulating the other boys and, and shouting mental things. If it's one that just gives you a, an insight into the game, like when Scott Williams wore it, people don't moan about it, but also people aren't like, yeah, that was terrific. I really enjoyed that. That added some depth to your coverage. So... It's a difficult one. There are people who, who, you know, probably do enjoy those twenty and sixty interviews. And actually sometimes the coaches might want to have their say. You know, you get certain mm. coaches to buy into it, like your Pat Lamb's, like your Jerry Flannery's. So, you know, it's it's just finding the kind of the right tone, the right place. Is is there a point to doing it? I do think there are times where if you if the person who gets put up for it is shit then you think, shall we bother? But then equally, if you're a club who doesn't want to do them, you're just going to put a shit person up because then you know it's going to get dropped. So you have to do the shit ones to get the good ones, if that makes sense.
1: That does make a lot of sense. You mentioned before about the women's game. Obviously, I mean, actually not obviously because I don't know, but I suppose in my tiny mind, you often think that women who want to cover sport may as a first instance try and go to a women's sport like women's rugby to, to get their career off the ground, but I've got no idea that's right or not. I'm just kind of making my stream of consciousness work. But um, obviously you didn't do that, but now you are working in a women's game. So what what's different? How have you found that? What's it done for you?
2: Well, I think from your first point there, what you've got to remember is if you are a young woman who, who wants to you know, have a career in sports, of course you're not going to go to the women's game because it gets no traction. And that's something that we need to affect now. And that's something that maybe young women who do want to work in sport can affect by trying to push that agenda but the reality is that the the interest isn't there because there's a massive apathy to it which is a huge shame because there is so much talent on show the women's world series before I worked on it so I booked the job I, I got offered the job and was like you know this is great I'm going to go to Dubai I'm going to go to Australia in the middle of summer I gonna get to go to Japan like you know obviously I'm going to take this job Do I care about the Women's Sevens World Series? Not massively, but, you know, it's a different experience. I've come off the back of the first season and all I do is shout from the rooftops how amazing these girls are. You know, on the field and off the field. They're incredible personalities. They've all got amazing lives off the pitch because they have to, because they don't get paid enough to be full-time pros. So they might be physios or teachers or personal trainers, any number of things.
1: When I, I then, what, so
2: The cool. quality is is so high. And even things like, you know, obviously the way that the World Series works is a team drops off it and joins it every season. And, and that uh, is a result of the qualifier in Hong Kong for both the men's and women's tournaments. And the women's Hong Kong qualifier was won by China. So the, a couple of weeks afterwards, they were then invited to be the invitational team in Japan. And they made it to the quarters of the cup competition because the quality now, it, you know, countries are striving, unions are striving to think, hang on a minute, in terms of women's sport, the World Series is one of the few elite global leagues. So actually, rugby union is, is becoming a bit of a world leader in, in women's sport. And it's something that I think all rugby fans should should give a bit of time to and champion. You know, I, I would encourage everyone, if you watch rugby, if you like sevens, to watch the women's competition at San Francisco because I don't think it'll be a case of pleasantly surprised you will be shocked by the quality you know the the Black Ferns won the last three tournaments of the series won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games and are genuinely breathtaking you've got players like Portia Woodman Michaela Blyde who are so quick so skillful and then you've got players sitting others down on their arse with so much force and pain that you think these people are never getting up again but it's not what people assume that women's rugby is about
1: yeah and it's a good you know I often think about when you were coming on I thought about it and you'd mentioned about your covering women's rugby I don't I don't actually watch a lot of sevens men's or women's to be honest and I don't watch that much for me and it's, it's a maths problem in that I only have so much time to watch rugby and I've not used that time to watch a lot of women's rugby I'm being honest. Yeah, and, but, I and my- that's and that's something I need to rectify. I'm not. I'm not saying that's right. That is something I need to rectify. And it is a good point. You should, if you like rugby, make time to watch it.
2: I, I think the big thing for me is there are certain people on social media who love to give it the big. I've watched every Super Rugby match, every Pro 14 match, and every Aviva Prem match this weekend. I think mate, it's December. Everywhere is waterlogged. Why have you ruined your weekend watching every Northern Hemisphere League match? What you should be looking for is the biggest match of the weekend, the biggest competition of the weekend. And if that happens to be the Dubai Sevens, give a couple of hours of your morning to watching that as opposed to, you know, watching some shitty mud bath at Newcastle. Well, not Newcast Newcastle because they got a 4G pitch. That's probably the biggest example I could have had there. But you know what I mean? It's a case no, of, no, you,
1: mean, yeah.
2: you know... Watching
1: I, anything at the AJ Bell Stadium, for example, just like, looking at that stadium makes you depressed. Never mind the game that goes in there.
2: But it's, it's when rugby fans are like, you know, I've got no interest in, in women's rugby. And I just, you know, it, that bothers me a massive amount because I think you can't. Yeah, you're that not- is
1: wrong. And yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, God, I just punched my microphone. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, and it is, it is, it is that thing about how you can, you're certain, it's that uh, about a boy film, isn't it? Like when he has units of time he allocates to doing things and i think it is about allocating some of your units of rugby watching time to actually broaden in your experience of the game and i'm as guilty as anybody for not doing that as much
2: but frankly. i will say and it's something that you know a lot of people there you know lots of very vocal rugby fans on on twitter there are a lot of women who love their rugby and aren't watching women's rugby and that is I'm, yeah
1: i have noticed that as well actually that is true yeah
2: let's support our let's support these women in rugby let's support what women's rugby is about and and you know it's Sevens, especially as a pathway for young women playing rugby now. You know, if you've got a seven year old daughter who wants to play rugby, she can go and play minis with the other boys her age, but she's going to get to a certain age where the opportunities for her to continue playing rugby are quite slim. Now, if more clubs can encourage, you know, you don't need as many people for a start. If more clubs can encourage a sevens environment for young girls, maybe that's how we're going to see women's rugby flourish. You know, it's an Olympic sport. It, you know, the World Series gives you the opportunity to, to literally travel around the world. Why wouldn't you want to do this? You know, I, I hate winter. I hate cold weather. But luckily, I got a week in Dubai and three weeks in Sydney out of it. So, you know, it's kind of... To me, it's a no-brainer for people to look at this and want to get more involved in it. And I know that Sevens isn't everyone's cup of tea. But then equally, I see... Thousands of retweets for backdoor cat flap passes from Super Rugby every Saturday. And I think, well, that's the norm in sevens. You're getting to see, because it's high energy, shorter games, the skill set is very high because, you know, it's all the tricks.
1: Yeah, I think there's something about the rarity value in the 15s that makes it more appealing, maybe. I don't know. I'm just thinking of that as just made me think when you said it. Right, so that's on that note, then that we should all actually pay a bit more attention to bits of the sport we're not watching. That's about an hour. So, that's uh, thank you very much for your time, LJ. Well, thank you
2: for inviting me on.
1: No, it's been really good actually, and made me think about a number of things. And you've also put me right quite forcefully on a number of things. <laughs> and well done, well done for, for doing that. Yeah, um,
2: maybe I'm a bit of a feminazi, I think that's what they call it nowadays. But... I don't
1: call it that, I've got no problem with that whatsoever. The um, yeah, so thank you very much indeed. Best of luck with the rest of the seven series. We'll all take it to heart that we should watch a bit more women's rugby. And uh, we'll maybe speak to you soon and see you around. Take care. Lovely.
2: Thanks
0: so much for your time. Bye. 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 In Ireland, we don't get a lot of sunshine, which means we probably don't get enough vitamin D and that's why we developed VitaBiotics Ultra Vitamin D, specially formulated. One tiny Ultra Vitamin D tablet helps maintain your immune system, providing all the vitamin D you need in one daily tablet. Bring a little sunshine into your day with VitaBiotics Ultra Vitamin D. Pick up your 3-month supply in-store and online from leading pharmacies and health food stores nationwide. Sports Social Podcast Network.